Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Zach, and I am, my name tag is all messed up from my son. Uh, I am the associate minister here, which means I, well, I do lots of different things. And this morning, it is my privilege to preach to you all. Last week, we began a new series on uh, the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Pastor Ben preached from First Thessalonians 1 about some of the causes, the behaviors, and effects of a good church. This morning, we are going to look to 1 Thessalonians 2, and unsurprisingly, we will pick up on similar themes as Paul continues to develop his thought in this letter to the Christians in the ancient city of Thessalonica. But before we go any further, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Sunday mornings. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here together with your people. Um, God, as we consider the church, uh, I pray that even now, right, right now, we would remember and realize that the church is not this building. The church is your family. Uh, the church is your sons and daughters gathered together to love you and love one another and love our neighbors. Uh, Father, I pray that as we turn to your word, that it would uh, be powerful in the way that you tell us it is, that it would be at work in us uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, as Ben mentioned, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and, and lay aside sins and, and every weight that clings and, and slow us down in our race. But I, I pray for uh, just our hearts across this room, uh, the different Things we bring on a morning like this. Uh, yesterday could have been horrible. It could have been fantastic. We could have been longing and waiting for Sunday morning to come to gather and sing. We could have been dreading it, but, but coming here out of duty. God, I pray that uh, for whatever reason we are gathered here, that we would be richly rewarded with your presence, with the knowledge of who you are, with your love, with your power, with your grace and goodness uh, just shining forth, whether it's in the songs we sing, the, uh, the communion and offering, uh, uh, or in the sermon now. And all these things, God, uh, I pray that you are glorified as we fix our eyes on you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, so go ahead and open up to 1 Thessalonians 2. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one somewhere floating underneath one of the seats in front of you. Go ahead and take that. I'm going to encourage you to have a Bible in front of you. It will probably be easier on you if you have an actual Bible in front of you versus a phone, but a phone will do. We will be doing lots of quick referencing and scrolling around doesn't always work so well for that. Um, but go ahead and open to First Thessalonians. It's an epistle, which is a Bible term for a letter, and it was written to the Christians in Thessalonica. And again, some of this might be review for you, it might be review just from last week, but it's good to bring these things up. It's the first of two letters to this city, which is why there's a first and second Thessalonians. And you can find these letters sandwiched near the middle of the Apostle Paul's other epistles. Uh, if you see Timothy, Titus, Philemon, or Hebrews, gone too far, and uh, if you see Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, or Colossians, you've not gone far enough. And the reason I say all that is because I've, I've, I heard recently where uh, it's a thing, you know, it's easy to get up here and say, oh, turn in your Bibles. And some people aren't sure where to turn. And that's A-OK. So I've bought us a little time, and I will continue buying us some time if you're still working to find that particular book. Um, 
I've, I've taken the passage this morning, verses 1 through 16, and split it into two chunks. It's not two halves, but two pieces. The first chunk tells us about Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. I may accidentally refer, refer to Silvanus as Silas. That's the same guy. Uh, but Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are faithful ministers of the gospel. And then going forward, I will only be talking about Paul, so I don't have to say Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy over and over again. So when I refer to Paul, I mean all three of them. And if I happen to say Silas, I mean Silvanus. So sorry if you get lost in any of that. Um, the second chunk is going to tell us about the Thessalonian Christians themselves who were faithful recipients of the gospel. So we have the faithful ministers of the gospel and we have the faithful recipients of the gospel. And there are probably other good, helpful ways of breaking this text down, but this is how I've done it. So now that, like I said, I've bought all of us time to make sure we got there to 1 Thessalonians 2, let's go ahead and read it together. And as we read, look for, listen for those descriptions of the faithful minister and, and notice when it changes over to describing the faithful recipients. And that might be especially helpful for our children, our students that are in here this morning. But let's go ahead and read starting in verse 1. It says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last." Now, hopefully you were paying attention to those two subjects, the, the faithful ministers and the faithful recipients. The faithful ministers fill up most of the passage, as you might have seen, and the faithful recipients, consequently, take up less space. And hopefully, in doing that, you are able to see for yourselves where we're heading. 
But there's something else about this passage passage that I would like to point out first. Uh, I'm sure we've all had this experience of finding something probably on the floor that looks important. Like it obviously belongs to something, but you're not sure what it is. It could just be a little plastic piece or a screw or something. We've all done this. Yes, I'm not the only one who's found something on the floor and you set it up. I'm sure this goes somewhere. For simplicity's sake, let's say you found a screw loose on the floor. You could pick that screw up and look at it from a thousand different angles. You could tell me the color of it, the material, the size, the style. If you really wanted to be hardcore, you could look up screw manufacturers and begin speculating where that screw originally came from. You could tell me the broad history of screws, uh, where they were first used, their different uses over history, all, all those kinds of things. So the possibilities for discussion, no matter how boring or uninteresting, are endless. But the most important thing about that piece, that screw, is how it fits into something bigger. And the same is true for scripture. We can take a passage like 1 Thessalonians 2 and we can look at it like a lost screw. We can turn it over and look at it from a thousand different angles and consider the grammar, consider the words, consider the Greek, consider all these different things. But if we don't understand what that passage is doing in the letter, we don't really understand the passage. And I believe the, pur- the purpose of this passage in, in 1 Thessalonians 2, what I believe Paul originally set out to do with these words, uh, these sentences, these thoughts of his, was to encourage the Christians at Thessalonica in the face of persecution. He was writing this part to encourage them. And so he reminds them of his ministry to them to give them confidence in the message they had received. Paul had not come like so many charlatans hawking some new product, a new idea, a new philosophy whose only real purpose was to earn gold and glory for the advocate. Paul came as a servant and representative of God. And by receiving Paul, the Thessalonian believers had received God, the one who sent him, even to the point of repentance, as recorded in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. Essentially, Paul is writing at least this part of this letter to say, good job, pat on the back, good job, keep up the good work. But how much can you or I really relate to that? When faced with doubt, when faced with suffering, can we look back on those who have taught us the things of God and draw confidence from their conduct, from their representation and witness of Jesus? Ideally, The answer to that is only and always yes. But for me personally, it's been a mixed bag. There are lots of godly people that I know and have looked up to and have learned from who have stayed steadfast for years. But I've also seen just as many individuals completely flounder in their faith. People who at once once upon a time encouraged me, taught me, built me up, built countless others up. And I'm sure I'm not the only one with that experience. And frankly, knowing myself, my own sins, my failures, my shortcomings, I don't presume to stand up here in front of anybody and hold myself up in this kind of way. Uh, Although I certainly aspire to be encouraging to us all. And whatever we might say about Paul's ongoing legacy and his ongoing ministry to us through his letters... We can say with certainty that Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians was different than his ministry to us. Therefore, 
we might find it a little difficult to step into this particular text in a way that isn't true of other passages. When Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, and I'm not going to say too much on this, but when he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, later in this very letter, that's just as true for you and me right now as it was for anyone back then. And no amount of cultural or temporal distance will, will sway that. On the other hand, we can read chapter 2, and we can know that Paul was a faithful minister who deeply loved the Thessalonians, but is that a comfort to you in the way it was to them? Probably not. And if this sounds like a very lousy theme for a sermon, I agree. It's not what the rest of my sermon is going to be on. But I think if we are going to be honest and skilled readers of scripture, rightly handling the word of truth, then we have to deal with the word on its own terms, recognizing its purposes and how it aims to achieve them. So the purpose of any given text isn't always the most obvious or the most quotable or the most applicable to us. And sometimes when we do the work to find that purpose, we might discover that it's a bit awkward. Not awkward in the like squirm and make you want to disappear kind of awkward, but awkward like a box that's way too big and has nowhere to grab. Awkward. You just don't know what to do with it. But I believe that God desires this for us. That reading scripture isn't just about skipping to what's important. God wants us to mull things over. He wants us to meditate on his word and consider the possibilities. The process of meditating on his word is often as important as the answer. Not in the you have your truth and I have my truth kind of way. Because there are still definitely right answers and definitely wrong answers. But the Holy Spirit is at work in us as we reflect deeply on the word of God, as we do our best to piece it together. So if you find that you are challenged in your own personal Bible reading to make sense of it, don't lose heart. Keep working and striving and reflecting upon it, knowing that this is a fundamental way for God's word to work in us. And also maybe find some friends to study with. Just like a second set of eyes can help you when you're looking for your lost cell phone or wallet or sunglasses. Or for me, it was duct tape. A second set of eyes will notice things in the word that you don't. So what do we do with 1 Thessalonians 2? Well, there's more to a passage than the main point, no matter how significant that main point may be. And when the main point seems to be a step or two removed from us, which I think this one is... We can still draw lessons from it while staying true to its original design. So in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 16, while you and I, we may not be encouraged by a recollection of Paul's ministry to us, we can be encouraged to live and work like Paul and the Thessalonians in a way that is encouraging to one another as faithful ministers and recipients of the gospel. So with that in mind, let's establish that we are all called to be ministers. Ministers, fundamentally speaking, are servants. Many, M-I-N-I, meaning small, is in the word minister. And that is not an accident. It might be a cute thing to say that many's in, in minister and maybe it'll give a few of you an idea or two about a joke to crack on Ben and I's expense. But it also gets at a profound truth. 
unlike a president who presides over an institution, whether it's an entire nation or a university or a book club, a servant, a minister, is by definition beneath something bigger and of greater significance. A minister is a servant, and we are all called to serve. And that call to service is as simple and straightforward as Christ's call to love one another as he has loved you. Nobody escapes the call to ministry, to service for the bigger, greater purpose of Christ. Of course, that doesn't mean we are all called to be Paul, standing boldly in the city center, trying to persuade people about Jesus. Praise God that there are people called to be Paul. We are all called to be pastors and preachers, but we are all called to love one another in service of the good news as witnesses to Jesus, our king. And while we might not follow Paul step by step, we can still look to him for a lot of guidance. So looking over first Thessalonians two, you could create a list of ministry do's and don'ts according to Paul's example. And if you did. I don't think you would find anything too surprising. Don't be greedy. Be honest. Be gentle. Be loving. Make sacrifices. Don't seek glory from people. Please God, not man. This, while unsurprising, is the heart of the matter. Don't seek glory from people. Please God, not man. If we are to follow Paul's example of encouragement, as well as that of the Thessalonians, we have got to get this straight. God must be your treasure, as well as the measure of every other treasure. God must be your treasure, as well as the measure of your treasure. He must be the one thing that you value most, and the one thing that gives everything else in life its value. Throughout this passage, Look how many times God has given such a fundamental position in Paul's thinking and doing. This is where it's going to be helpful to be looking at the text. They had boldness in God, in verse 2, to declare the gospel of God, in verse 2. Their approval was by God, verse 4. They sought to please God, verse 4. God is witness, verse 5. Verse 6, they are apostles of Christ, and we know Christ is himself God. They charged the Thessalonians to walk in a manner worthy of God. In verse 12 and verse 13, they constantly thank God about they re- the way they received the word of God. And then a verse later, a verse or two later, it talks about the church of God. God has given pride of place for these ministers and for these Christians. Now, I can stand here today and tell you not to be greedy. And I will. I will. Don't be greedy. And especially don't use other Christians, the church, the gospel, Christianity, or Christ to make yourself rich. That's despicable, frankly. And and it shows that the God you really serve is money. Being rich is not a sin. But we are to use our riches for the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of God for our riches. I can stand here today and tell you not to be a narcissist. Don't be self-interested. Don't be selfish. Don't only be thinking about yourself. And I will. Don't be a narcissist. The whole world doesn't revolve around you. 
Most people don't actually owe you anything. And in fact, most people are too worried about themselves to actually notice you. Which is one of the amazing things about the church. Or at least it's supposed to be. The church is a place where we are all called out of ourselves, away from ourselves, and towards one another. Noticing each other and outdoing one another in showing honor. In the church, we do owe each other many things. We owe each other love, encouragement, honor, accountability, support. We do, in fact, owe each other a lot. But don't be a narcissist. And don't come into church and use other Christians, use the church, use the gospel, use Christianity or Christ to draw attention to yourself. That's gross. There's no other way of putting it. And it shows that the God you really serve is you fame and attention are not sinful but if those are the things you're aiming for you might like the hypocrites in matthew 6 go check them out later you might get those things here and now but miss out on them from your heavenly father when and where it counts now there are several other charges that i could make from this text today based upon paul's example And in fact, I I hope you will spend some time with 1 Thessalonians 2 beyond this half-hour sermon, letting God work on you as you wrestle with his word and take it to heart. But before you can boldly proclaim the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict, and before you can seek to please God and not man, and before you can commit to sharing your very life for the sake of Christ, let me go back, because all these things are being referenced in the scripture. Right? Before you can boldly proclaim the gospel in the midst of much conflict, as in verse 2, before you can seek to please God and not man, like verse 4, before you can commit to sharing your very life for the sake of Christ, as in verse 8, before you can commit to labor and work and toil so as not to burden one another, in verse 9, you must, you, you absolutely must have a God-shaped vision of the world. He must be your treasure and the measure of every other treasure. The situation for Paul and the Christians in Thessalonica wasn't great. There are lots of ways for a church to suffer. There can be death. There can be poverty. There can be illness. And there can be persecution. And the Thessalonian church was a persecuted church. They were a suffering church. An angry mob attacked the man... Who, was like, who likely owned the house where this baby-fledgling church was meeting. And the mob dragged him before city, the city officials and extorted money from him. And again, this is rehashing some things because we're in the same book. Ben mentioned some of this last week. And that stuff can be found and read in Acts 17, 1 through 10. It's very short. You might wish it were a little bit longer because it's kind of exciting stuff. But they were persecuted. And Paul addresses this persecution In verses 14, 15, and 16, there is suffering, and it is very real. And the trouble with suffering is that it's suffering. And suffering is hard. It feels an awful lot like losing. And it doesn't just feel like losing, it looks like losing. Particularly when we suffer as Christians. Not suffering death or sickness, or loss, and limits as humans. Everyone suffers those things. And and praise be to God that the church, that Jesus Christ has an answer to those kinds of sufferings. But truly suffering for the sake of following Christ looks an, an awful lot like losing. Paul did that. 
The Christians in Thessalonica did that. And it is becoming increasingly likely that you and I will face that decision, whether or not to do that. And if we will have the the courage and the gumption to suffer for Christ, then we must, with Paul, recognize that our present sufferings are nothing compared to the eternal glory waiting for us with Christ Jesus our Lord. We must find that our lives revolve around God the way Paul's life did. That everything was done with respect and reference to him. We must treasure God first and foremost and allow the immeasurableness of God to determine the value of everything else in our lives. Which doesn't mean nothing else holds any value. Families are valuable. Friends are valuable. Work is valuable. Money is valuable. A good reputation is valuable. God's church is valuable. But the value of anything is only understood against that immeasurable value of Jesus. If we are going to be encouraging ministers, servants of the Gospels, if we are to be encouraging recipients of the Gospel, the kind of people, the kind of church who stands fast under pressure, the kind of church who has no need for greed and no need for the approval of man, the kind of church that can pour itself out for others because it overflows with love. If we're going to be the kind of church that can nurture and call to task, if we will be the church that takes God at his word and accepts this book as his word powerfully at work among us, if we will be that church, we must, we must treasure God and let him measure all of our other treasures. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, uh, you probably are familiar with this verse. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Paul evaluated things not on how they appeared, but how he knew them to be. And this is how it ought to be for Christians. But it often isn't. You and me, uh, we, we struggle to walk by faith. We, we live by sight. We walk by sight. What we see shapes us so much. But the thing that made Paul so effective and encouraging was that everything he saw was interpreted by faith. Now, perhaps you have heard of Penn and Teller. Uh, Penn and Teller is a comedy, magic, illusion, entertainment duo that has been performing together for decades Uh, admittedly, they're a little rough around the edges. And uh, if you're watching with kids, you might find yourself hitting mute at points. But there's no denying that their act, what they're doing, is very, very impressive. You know it's not magic. I know it's not magic. We all know it's not magic. They admit that it is not magic, but it all looks so magical. But it's not just Penn and Teller. There are Lots and lots of people dazzling crowds, dazzling audiences with their tricks, whether they're naming cards or pulling rabbits out of hats. In fact, the chances are pretty good that in this room, more than a few people know a good card trick or two. But like I already said, none of this is magic. We know that. None of this is magic tapping into some strange power from beyond. Instead, all of these things, they depend upon our ability or rather our inability 
to really see what's going on through amazing showmanship, through misdirection and sleight of hand and an occasional cleverly modified prop. The truth of the trick is hidden and you and I. The crowd, the audiences are left ooing and awing in wonder and amazement at the, the apparent magic. This magic exists in the space between what we see and what we know. Magic is in the contradiction, right? It's, it's the contradiction between what we can see with our eyes and what we know to be true. And it is easy as Christians to get pulled into the magic, into the illusions of what we see rather than what we know. It can get easy to be pulled in by persecution and suffering and to believe the illusion that we are losing, that this is wrong, that we're suffering because we've done something wrong. And that, it's a, that is especially easy when we, we don't actually know what we're supposed to know. And that's why it's so important that we spend time in God's word with one another, encouraging one another, building each other up so that we can know what we need to know. See, if you were uh, at a you know, magic show and you were not sure whether or not rabbits spontaneously appeared in top silk hats. And you watched that enough times and you became convinced that actually rabbits do just appear in hats and maybe it's not so magical this is just how it is we all recognize that that is absurd but if you did that you might start going around opening your closet you might not i don't think any of us have top hats in our closets but you might open your closet and expect to find a rabbit popping out of a boot again we we recognize that this is absurd because in that case the trick the magic the rabbit out of the hat that trick is redefined reality for us Don't let the tricks of this world, the sufferings, the persecutions, whatever it may be, redefine our God-given reality. Treasure God and let him be the measure of every other treasure. And if we can do that, we will surely be the kind of church, the kind of ministers, the kind of servants to encourage one another when trouble comes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. I pray that you would do a work in us. Um, yes, as individuals, uh, but, but maybe even more so as a church. That, that together as a church, together as your church, we could be uh, greater than the sum of our parts. God, that as you build us together uh, uh, into your body, um, That what we do, the the ministry we have, the service we offer, the encouragement we can bring, whether it's to one another or to the watching world, and and sometimes, frankly, the not watching world. God, I pray that it would be a great and mighty thing. God, I pray that we would be captured by your goodness and your beauty and your glory and your majesty. And that we would walk by faith and not by sight. That these things of of greed and self-interest and And gentleness and all of these things come from a heart that is first treasuring you. And if we try to do those things on our own, uh, we might pull it off, God. But we so badly, so desperately need to know who we are in you. And need to have that rock solid foundation underneath our feet. If we are going to be the kinds of people that you call us to be. God, thank you. 
Thank you that you have given us that rock solid foundation that in Jesus Christ, we can be certain of our standing in the universe. God, that we do not need to strive to be a certain kind of person, that we are who you've made us to be. Help us to walk and live confidently in that, to walk in a manner worthy of you and your call into your kingdom and glory. And I pray, um, God, that, again, we, we would just be so moved and shaped by your word, for, uh, word and, and that we would spend the time to do the work, to know what we need to know uh, in order to not be tricked and, and know what we believe and why we believe it. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.